Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast on the basics of data science. I would also like to point you out to my blog, cliffc.org slash blog, where I have about a decade of blogs and all my podcasts, um, including some on data science and a whole lot on various kinds of programming and performance. So how does programming and performance tie into data science? Well, actually, it's the other way around. I think we're all doing a lot of data science these days. And there's a lot of aspects of data science that when you wrap your head around it, have some very close similarities to programming. So I'm just going to dive in here and give an example of data science. Um, I took this, uh, this example came straight from my course at Stanford called CME 250A, and the videos are online. And this is a story of the Titanic. Like, you know, we all know that the Titanic sank with, you know, two thirds of the people on board. And also that there's this, you know, notion of women and children first in these kinds of, you know, events, especially in the historical time frame of the Titanic, you might think sort of chivalry was alive and well. So let's look at the data and see what it says. So, you know, the basics of data science are something like get some data that you're going to do some data science with and try to load it into some kind of tool. Typically, this fails the first few go-arounds, and it needs a lot of filtering and cleanup before you can even ingest it in anybody's tool. And then once you have it ingested, you build a model. What's a model? Model's a mathematical estimate of reality. It's something you're doing in mathematics that you're hoping ties into the real world in a way that you can use to do you know, predictions somewhere. And then you, you look at the model and you, you, you check the model quality. Typically, it's crap. It overfits or underfits badly. It can do both at the same time. Um, and in particular, things like predicting somebody's survival chances on Titanic by using their name um, doesn't help predict future survival odds. You know, any reasonably good uh, modeling tool on a small data set given enough time and energy will basically memorize the data set, and you have to watch out for overfitting there. Um, and so as a consequence, you end up looking at the data set and you typically uh, you know, look at some of the features that you're modeling on and decide to throw some out or add some new ones in. You would call munging on the data. And this is where you know, it gets interesting with big data where the cost of munging um, exceeds sort of the, you know, the availability of easily obtained you know, cycles. Um, you know, I'll talk a little bit about tooling, but basically the old school R programming language is good for data sets up to um, maybe a gigabyte, definitely a megabyte's getting stretching it, and a big old server might do a gig. Whereas Python is pretty okay up to about a gig, um, but you know you could take it up some tens of gigs, um, maybe with a giant server, but really it's topping out pretty badly somewhere in the, the one to 10 gig range. Um, and in you know, Java-based tooling like H2O will go up to the terabytes pretty easily. And then there's a bunch of things, um, there, you know, other kinds of tool chains that have different ranges. But basically anything beyond a gigabyte starts to like become pain to use. Okay, so enough on that. In the case of the Titanic, the commonly available data set's really kind of small, so you can pull in any old tool you want and take a look at it. And once you've decided that you want to, you know, get a model out, you don't like it, you might uh, uh, change some features left and right and model again. And you keep doing this over and over in a big loop where you you model and you check the quality and you adjust and add features and whatever and you model again until you get a model that's good enough. Um, and hopefully it's good enough to predict the future that you can then use to you know make the world a better place. You know whether you're predicting cancer or fraud or or you know whatever you know the, the kinds of health management people need or whatever it's going to be. There's there's usefulness to be done with data science. 
So back to my, my little tiny data set from the Titanic here. Um, if you look at the data set, it's a standard CSV. What's a CSV? Well, comma-separated values is what the CSV stands for. Um, in, in practice, they are often tab-separated, sometimes space-separated, sometimes pipe, sometimes any kind of weird-ass thing. Um, they're usually kind of messy because there is no true spec for CSV and people are kind of loosey-goosey about what it means to be a CSV. In this particular case, there's a single line up front, which is the title line. It has comma-separated names, passenger class, survive, name, sex, age, siblings, um, PR, ticket, fare, cabin, whatever. There's a bunch of them. Um, sometimes there's no titles at all. Sometimes there's several lines of the title. Sometimes there's obvious comments on the front. Sometimes not. Keep looking at the data. It's values separated by commas, and the values themselves might be numbers like one, two, three. They might be names like Alan Space Miss Dot Elizabeth Walton. So if you look at that name, it's got spaces in it. So that's common where in a comma-separated uh, file, there are spaces in the fields, which makes it ambiguous when you're trying to differentiate this with a space-separated file. That's pretty common. Might be a mix of tabs and spaces in the fields. In this case, this case, there's also open and closed parens. There are forward slashes. There are single quotes. It is also commonly the case in CSV files that people use either single or double quotes to quote spaces or to quote, for instance, a comma if they want to have it in a comma-separated file or a space in a space-separated file. In this case, it's just Miss uh, Eileen O'Leary, and she has a quote around O'Leary, and that's kind of common in names, and it has nothing to do with quoting anything. The quote is part of the field. So, you know, another look at the field here, you'll see places where commas are back to back to back. And what this means is that the data is just not available. Another common practice in data science you must deal with. It's all nice and, and tidy to say I have a nice two-dimensional table uh, suitable for handling to these mathematical algorithms for modeling, but mostly the data sets are not so polite, and you have to deal with missing data. Um, sometimes missing data is giving the name not available with NA as an abbreviation for short. Sometimes there's a question mark. Many times it's simply missing the text format, but when you load it internally, you have to somehow mark it as missing and not zero. Um, there are data sets for which there is a, a double uh, NAND value is an actual part of the data set separate from a missing value. So you might have to distinguish missing from NAND. So a further sort of deeper look. So get past the textual problem of loading the data, and now you take a deeper look at the data. So there's this notion of a categorical, sometimes called enumerations or enums or factors. And in this case, there's a column titled sex, and the corresponding fields are all either female or male. And this is very common. Um, you know, there are two sexes on the planet, male and female. And, you know, despite the, the, the modern trends to be more flexible about what it means, biologically, it's still an X or a Y chromosome, depending on how you're counting. And that's what it is. Categorical show up in lots of other places as well, such as, you know, car manufacturers of Ford, Chrysler, Porsche, and, you know, Mitsubishi. Or in zip codes, where you might have, you know, uh, 999,000 of them. Really, you're having about 10,000 zip codes. 
And maybe you want to treat that as a number from one to ten thousand, but actually they're kind of unrelated, and they're very uh, they're very telling about the kinds of values that are in a neighborhood homes, for instance, or salaries, or crime rates, or whatever. So zip codes are a really useful categorical that happens to be a fairly large count of them, whereas sex is a fairly common one. It's also useful. It only has a count of two. Another look at the data here. So there's an age field, and you might think this is a number from 1 to 99, for instance. But maybe age goes up to 120. But if you see an age like 200, maybe it's a broken field. In our case, the age is missing in a few places. And there's a fractional age. There's Allison Master, uh, Master Hudson Trevor, a male of age 0.9167. What the hell is that? Well, you do a little math, and it's an 11-month-old baby. 11 out of 12 months, somebody divided 11 by 12 and wrote down the approximate fraction of 0.9167. So it looks like age would be all integers at first glance, but it's not really. So just another you know, piece of junk you have to figure out in the data. Finally, we're getting to the point where we're going to pull up something that you want to use as a predictor. So this is a survived field, and it contains numbers like 1 and 0. This is a thing we want to predict on. You survived or you didn't. It's a 1 or a 0. Sometimes the predictors are a 1 or a minus 1, and sometimes they're true or false, like cancer or no cancer. Sometimes they're listed as an X or an NA. Sometimes the predictors are putting another file that you have to uh, 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 join with the current file to make uh, you know, a, a data set that has the, the predictor field. The predictor field itself is often called the response field as well, whereas the other columns are called features. Okay, so. Having got this data set loaded and figured out what the predictor is, um, you know, what does my workflow looks like? Well, I load it up in some, uh, you know, some kind of toolkit. So our Python or H2O or, or Spark or whatever, these all will load a CSV fairly well. In my case, I turned around and built a gradient-boosted method model. It's a good standard, uh, uh, easy-to-reach-for modeling tool. Um, and just built a model using all defaults. Basically, I sat down and said, you know, h2o.buildmodelgbm, and, and done, I got a model out. Okay, the model reports as being 98% accurate. That's pretty amazingly accurate on a first try, so it deserves a deeper look. So then I looked at why did it get such a high accuracy rate? And the main feature, so I looked at the features, and the main feature that it uses to decide whether or not you lived or died was whether or not you got a lifeboat number. Basically, if you got a number of a lifeboat, you got in a lifeboat and then you lived. And if you didn't get a number, you didn't get a lifeboat and you didn't live. So basically the model's crap, other than it says, you know, make sure you get in a lifeboat if your boat's sinking. Okay, fine, so let's try again. And this is where I get into this whole lather, rinse, repeat cycle, where you need to repeat a few iterations and you need to be prepared to repeat a few iterations. So right away, ponder scripting your workflow however that's done. So in my case, I went back and I had to drop the boat column. So I added a line in my script that said, drop the boat column. And then, you know, model again. And then I look and realize that I'm modeling on a zero or one, which shows up as a real number. And so my model is based on what's called a Gaussian model. It's some sort of line that probably passes through zero or one, but the line stretches on to infinity in either direction and come negative or much greater than one and doesn't make any sense. So I really want a logical value here, a true false. So I need to flip those zero and one to a categorical column. And so I have another line in my script that says, flip this column to categorical. Now my modeling by default becomes, instead of a Gaussian or regression model, 
a logistic regression. Okay, model again. Well, it's less accurate than before, thankfully, because I removed boat, and see if there's any other thing that makes sense here. And the major feature that pops out here is home.desk column. Well, what's that column? When you stare at it, you realize that most of the people who died boarded at Southampton. And why would boarding the Titanic at the Southampton port versus, you know, London port make you live or die? So that's a suspicious feature. And so I threw it out again to see if there's some other feature that it's modeling and it happens to correlate with Southampton. So I build again, and then I discover that there are some major features that now make sense. It's your sex, man or woman, your age, adult or child, your fare, and your passenger class. Higher fare typically is correlated with a higher passenger class. And a little further look at the data shows that the third class kids died along with their parents. You wanted to be a rich woman to live on the Titanic. And then the rich kids, there are only a handful, generally survived as well. The men were 50-50. Some of the rich men died to like make room for other people. But mostly, if you were poor, you went down with the boat. So what does this all mean? It means there's a story in the data, an interesting uh, something to discover that maybe you thought was true, but until you look, you're, you don't know. And, and in this case, typically you're just wrong. So looking at the data is, is very useful in all kinds of domains. Maybe you can find the causes for cancer or why different kinds of you know, people die due to train wrecks or, or smoking or, or you know, wearing a seatbelt or not. Sometimes you're just building a better mousetrap so that you know, my ads look more like the ads that I actually might freaking care about. Our Netflix prize will deliver a better movie experience. Sometimes you're out to make some gold. Sometimes you're out to save the world. But in any case, there's a story in the data, and it's useful to look at. So now I'll, I'll go a little bit around um, some of the more interesting uh, failure modes with machine learning here. Machine learning shows you correlation, not causality. It says that there's a correlation between boarding at Southampton and going down with a boat. But it doesn't say why boarding at Southampton sends you down with the boat. Whereas causality might come from, you know, men and women, well, the women, the men let meet space for the women in some cases, but mostly, you know, having discovered there's a correlation with being rich kid and rich woman, you can now look at the causality of you're in the upper decks, you had time to get out. Some of the people in the lower decks were actually locked in because it was common practice in that era to lock in the steerage class passengers to make it safer for everyone else on the above deck. So they'd have to mingle with the plebeians, right? Um, hopefully that doesn't happen anymore. Um, and, and so the, the next observation I'll say sort of unrelated here is, is to say it's often, you can think of it as programming with data. It's like coding. But, but with data here, it's interactive. You're going to have to repeat until you get it right. You have to debug your, your script. You have to uh, diagnose overfitting. And this is where the, the modeling algorithm is just memorizing data set by producing a crap answer out because it doesn't have any way to predict data it's never seen before. Or underfitting. And this would be the case where <clears throat> it, it's producing a lousy prediction and it tells you that. Um, and maybe you need more feature engineering. Or maybe you've got the wrong data for what you're trying to predict for. 
There's usually a lot of ETL, export transfer and load issues, like bad CSV files, or the data is like just raw text. It has to be, you know, munched a lot. The whole NLP got this giant uh, bump up with word to vec which is this notion that you could take the kinds of words that are showing up in a file and turn them into some sort of uh, uh, a ve machine vector for you know correlated machine vector, and that in turn let you take raw text and apply machine learning in an interesting way to discover all kinds of useful things. So I guess oh another major issue here is that there's lots and lots of machine learning algorithms. Um, generalized linear modeling is one where you do a best fit hyperplane, um, and, it, and and because it's sort of all sort of uh, linear style math. It's the oldest math. It's the fastest. It tends to be least predictive, um, but it's fastest by a lot. H2O can do uh, terabyte size data sets. It can do a fit a generalized linear model in, in one or two minutes. So really, really fast, but not necessarily the most predictive modeling. Um, there are tree-based methods or random forest and gradient boosted method are two of the most popular ones. And these do discrete refinement of the function space where you call your feature set a function space and discrete refinement is, a, is you, you split it in half along some feature by some value that's you know in that feature. And then you model each to have separately and you split and you split and you split and you split. So discrete refinement of the function space. It's definitely slower and the models get quite a bit larger because they have to memorize very large trees, generally hundreds or thousands of trees. Um, it will handle all kinds of bad and, and irregular data, and it can be definitely more predictive than the, the generalized linear modeling ones. And then there's deep learning or neural nets, which is the current everyone's favorite. Um, it can be very slow and is very floating point heavy. It, however, however, it's a good fit for GPUs. And so, you know, NVIDIA and people who do GPU manufacturing are pushing real hard deep learning as, a, as a, you know, the best tool on the planet. Uh, Google's gone so far as to make TPUs, which are not necessarily only for deep learning, but they're very clearly geared to help deep learning move along. Um, it can be very predictive if your model converges, but it's not necessarily the only model that converges and not necessarily the best. I have totally seen uh, random forest beat deep learning, you know, hands down in lots of domains. Another thing that you should think about is in the in the realm of overfitting, random forest is extremely difficult to overfit, whereas these uh, the other models can definitely overfit and definitely overfit fairly easily. And then you get into more complicated stuff, which is maybe beyond uh, this podcast, but cross-validation is sort of your friend here. And then when you look at the, the tool chains that are out there, um, you know, R is the oldest, and it's very data science-centric. Uh, and it has a huge library of data science-centric tools. And it, because it's older, it tends to have an audience who's been doing data science for a very long time, and they're quite expert at the data science. On the other hand, R is very, very quirky. It was built in an era before people knew much about how to do news much about language design. And so it has some really obscure, weird ways to do things. And it's very slow, and it's a memory hog. And the language spec is such you can't fix the slow in the memory hog, at least not in any reasonable way, now without sort of complete rewrites. Python is a much more newer language and much more computer science friendly. It's a lot faster than R and a lot less memory. And the tool chain here is less well integrated than the R side. There's sort of two camps. There are the pandas and the scikit numpy folks. And, and you have to kind of decide I'm doing everything as a giant matrix or I'm doing thing as a 
R style data frame where paint is a little friendlier there. Um, but it's very broad and general purpose and easy for a lot of people to pick up. And the newer data scientists are generally pretty comfortable in Python. You can find people who will hack well in Python here. Um, after that, you get into more specific tool chains. And I mentioned a lot of H2O because I co-founded the company. Um, much, much faster, much less memory, um, will handle giant, giant data sets. But it's very narrowly scoped. It's certainly you know, geared for uh, data munging at scale, but not necessarily sort of convenient uh, exploration. Um, I can explore using H2O, but maybe I'm a special case. So you know, here's the you know, inventor bias warning. Um, Spark uh, with MLlib and Hadoop um, are a much more common, uh, well-known uh, data science toolkit. They're faster than R, um, but slower than H2O by maybe 10x. They will scale out their general purpose, much harder to set up, and the algorithm's not nearly as strong. So you will have issues with algorithms that are immature, and they might silently overfit or just fail on data sets for which an R or a Python, you know, a, a more robust tool chain will just you know, eat and use. Um, so really, I guess that there's there's lots of fun things to do now in machine learning, and it's gotten you know big as well. Like big data sets are now commonly available. Where big means it's too big for an expert to look at, and so you want tools to look at the data set instead of an expert. And the expert needs to be an expert in the tools and not in the not necessarily in the domain, but some of the domain and some of the tools. But the data sets get really big. Now you need experts in big data along with experts in using tooling on big data. And it becomes harder and harder to, to put together. But when you put these things together and get them to work, you can find all kinds of really cool stuff in this big data. Uh, and you know, basically, you know, the gold rushes on, and there's gold in them via disks if you can figure out how to mine it out. So I guess I'll claim, you know, data science and machine learning is sort of the currently new gold rush that, you know, the Silicon Valley in California is running on. Oh, God, <laughs> I, I promise I won't blow this gold rush, right? That's the California, sorry, ah, California standard uh, lament. Anyhow, you know, what's in there? X-rays and sonograms and cancer and heart disease and strokes and seizures and emergency room delays or hospital readmission and wearable health credit card fraud and recommendation engines, ad tech marketing, customer churn situations, ham span, network intrusion, um, you know, network DDoS attacks and data center optimizations and device failure and automobile failure and all kinds of things are there. So pick up your tools and uh, go mine that data. And this has been Cliff Click. Oh, with one more reminder, go check out my blog at cliffc.org slash blog. Have a great day. Bye-bye.